Today is about the various human emotions that are tied to the scriptures and what the Bible has to say about those various emotions. And today I'd like to talk with you about the whole emotional matter of fear. And so with our Bibles, I'd like to turn to Psalm 27. Here is a passage of scripture that is rooted in David's encounters with King Saul, who is out to take David's life. You'll notice that the superscription, in fact, reads, Of David. And so again, we have something penned out of his own personal experiences, not something out of the human vacuum or void, independent of what you and I wrestle with in everyday life, but rather something that is in the rough and tumble of everyday living. Here you find now David, again addressing an issue that is commonplace to us, that can have a paralyzing effect upon our lives if it is not managed appropriately, and it's the whole issue of fear as it relates to life. I'd like to begin reading in verse 1 and take it down through verse 6, though we'll cover the entire psalm in our study. David wrote these words, That the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. And though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. And though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to seek Him in His temple. For in the day of trouble He will keep me safe in His dwelling, and He will hide me in the shelter of His tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. And then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me, and at His tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy, and I will sing and make music to the Lord. So we're going to ask God now to show us how these verses relate to our lives. And we'll start by looking to God in prayer. And Father, again, I'm praying over the course of these summer days as we invest time looking into various psalms that relate to the human condition, that you again open our hearts, our minds, our souls to what it is you want to teach us, no matter what our backgrounds, our education, our experiences, our income, our health, our family matters. No matter what, Father, you have something to say. What we all share in common is a need for relationship with you through Christ. So now, Lord, again, open our hearts, our minds, our souls to the things that need to be addressed. And we're going to commit these moments now into your care. We pray this, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Robert Ciro belongs to the Oakland Police Department, along with his partner, Lou, who have come to saving faith in Christ Jesus and love him deeply and wrestle with how to make Christianity uh, an effective, vibrant, 
dynamic in the police force in Oakland County. They were having their devotions in a little restaurant, catching a little break in the action. Robert and Lou were discussing the whole issue of how fear is spoken of in the Bible and relates to the occupation of the police officer. And Robert leaned forward to his partner who was newer in the faith and asked this question, Lou, in light of what the Bible has to say, what is it right now that you are most fearful of in your life? There was a pause in the conversation. And Lou put down his fork and opened his mouth as he was beginning to speak when all of a sudden they heard this tremendous bang. Incredible sound from outdoors. Collision. Car had occurred and they looked at one another and knew where they were needed. Robert said to Lou, hold that thought. We'll get back to it. As they raced out the doors to address the issue of the moment. So often you and I, when we are having to deal with the big, big, big issues of fear within our lives, right when we find ourselves at a point when we can begin to address the issue, Something happens in life that calls upon us to hold that thought. Maybe that you have to care for somebody in your home, or maybe you've got to go back to work, or maybe you're out of work and, you, and you're, you're looking for something now to put things back together. But right when you feel as though you're about ready to make some headway and address an issue that otherwise would paralyze you, once again, life breaks in and you find that you have to hold that thought. What I love about the Psalms is that David does not hold back his thoughts. And in today's study, as we look at the way in which he wrestles, grapples with the dynamic of fear in the everyday human condition, what he does for us is to note how God offers two provisions for the way in which we are to biblically address the fears that can so paralyze our lives. In verses 1 down to verse 6, you and I are going to notice in our outlines what I will call our statement of faith. What it is that you and I are called upon in life to believe. And then in verse 7 down through verse 14, you will find, second of all, our strategy for fear. And my basic argument is, is that we are so quick to develop our strategies for fear in everyday counseling, we don't consider first things first. That we need to hammer down what we believe, our statement of faith. And once you've got your statement of faith worked out, then you're prepared for your strategy for fear in everyday life. So now what God does through David and David's own personal experiences wrestling with this tremendously difficult subject emotionally is to offer us now a framework to begin to think biblically about this subject of fear. So we're going to begin with our statement of faith and begin in verse 1 where we notice that David pens these words, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now there are two availabilities I want to draw out from these verses 1 through 6. And the first is this, that number one, God's protection is available to us. We see that in verse 1, down through verse 3. Notice now, in his statement of faith, how he begins to talk about God's protective nature. He begins not with his fears. These are the issues that I've got going against me in life. No. He begins with the words, the Lord. And notice with me again that Lord is capitalized, capital L-O-R-D. In other words, David now, in the midst of his emotional turmoil, is drawing from the deep rivers of the scriptures where God has revealed himself as Lord throughout the Old Testament writings, the covenantal relational name for God. When you and I are going to address the big issues of life, we have got to understand the necessity for the right starting point to thinking. When we begin with anything or anyone other than the Lord, chances are we are going to have a skewed approach to resolving the issues of life. Because your beginning point will shape your ending point. When you begin well, you are already on the road to ending well. David now wants to think wisely about this emotion that can so paralyze a believer that he or she becomes incapacitated to serve God effectively. Maybe that's where you have found yourself at times. Where at night, where God would have you sleep well, knowing He's sovereign. Instead, you lie awake, attempting to make yourself sovereign. And you've made yourself the starting point. With an, I must, or I should, or I need to approach rather than sleeping with the assurance that capital L-O-R-D is the only one who has the rightful claim to sovereignty. Your starting point is critical for getting to your ending point. Notice furthermore that as he begins to unfold his statement of faith about who God is, he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. He does not say, the Lord provides me with light and salvation. It's critically important to understand you begin with who God is before you even get to what God does. Let alone what we should do. See how we Americans get everything in reverse? He is so on target theologically that he begins with the very nature of God the Lord is rather than begins with the Lord does or the Lord provides or the Lord gives. And he is honoring God by revealing to God how he truly views about what is most important, what is first in the midst of life's great challenges. And who is first? So he begins with not himself, but the Lord. 
He begins with the word is rather than provides or gives or some action verb. Then he moves to his relationship to God. Notice the word my. He does not say the Lord is the light on the salvation and so forth. No, he has cultivated a deep, rich understanding that the sovereign God is a relational God, and now he incorporates this relationship into the challenges he is facing as an individual. He uses the word my, do you? Is God so removed from your life that you feel as though there is no direct relationship between him and the issues you are now facing? Or have you cultivated such a thorough understanding of who God is that you are then ready to say, I have a relationship with the God who is sovereign? The Lord is my. And now notice the metaphors that he uses. Light, salvation, stronghold. The Lord is my light. What does light do? Light involves, among other things, that which reveals. What does salvation entail? That which redeems. What does stronghold, the Lord is the stronghold of my life, entail? A place of refuge. Put them together. He reveals. He redeems. He provides refuge. All within the context of who he is, you see. And now you are beginning to develop very powerfully, clearly, and effectively a clear starting point to begin to work through the big issues of everyday life. Now look more. After having developed this within his thought process, he now poses a question. He didn't start with, why me, Lord? No, he starts with, Lord, and then gets to the question. And the question is, whom shall I fear? It is a question of contrast. In other words, once you've got your understanding of God clear, accurate, and biblical, then what you do is you compare everything and everyone else in life to this view of God and ask yourself, okay now, in light of my understanding of who God is according to God's word, how does this source of fear compare to my God? He has a legitimate question now to pose, which he should not have posed earlier, but now he can because he started with first things first. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Therefore, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. And stronghold is a rich Hebrew word. Because as David would be fleeing from Saul across the Israelite terrain, he would be looking for various strongholds where he could find a sense of refuge to protect him from enemy assault. That is the sort of word he is using here to describe God and his relationship to God. The Lord is, not provides the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? 
Now with these two, yet three descriptions of God set forth, he builds two questions off of them and they grow in intensity. He asked, whom shall I fear in relationship to having established God's role in his life? And furthermore, he asks, of whom shall I be afraid when he said, the Lord is the stronghold of my life? And what fascinates me in the Hebrew is that the word afraid is even a more intense emotion than the word fear found in the first question. And what also interests me is that this is the very line of reasoning that Paul used when we covered Romans in about a year and a half to two years, when in Romans 8 verse 31, Paul asked this question, What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And what Paul is doing is that he is building on the same approach to resolving issues that David did in the Old Testament. He is thinking accurately because he is thinking scripturally. Now that's what you have to do, and that's what I have to do. We have to have a clear starting point, and then we can begin to pose questions. And we then have a, a sense of confidence when we pose questions, because we know we've got a dynamic relationship with a sovereign God who provides these metaphors for the way in which he relates to you and relates to me in everyday life. She was in a frightening storm middle of the Atlantic Ocean, reflecting on God's word. Ship's captain approached her, and when they had made their way through the storm, asked her how she had kept her calm. She looked up, and he saw the same peace in her eyes that he had seen throughout the course of the journey. I have two daughters, she said. One of them lives in New York. The other lives in heaven. I knew I was going to see one or the other of my daughters in a few hours. And it really didn't matter to me which one it was. True story. When you and I are able to see God's sovereign workings in the midst of the storm, and realize that time is God's, not ours. And the storm is God's, not ours. And eternity is God's, not ours. We put first things first. It helps when you do that. And so I pick up the phone this week and once again thinking biblically and hopefully practically with a cancer patient who's terminal, wrestling with the big issues and the big questions of life. And once again, we work off of a quality starting point as we think about the various possibilities of treatment that are, that are available to this individual. 
Now David is offering you and me the starting point of God's nature is described through questions in verse 1. And after having done that in verses 2 and 3, he talks about his personal experiences in light of who God is. And I want you to notice the descriptive phrases, the way in which he goes about depicting the opposition to his life. When evil men advance against me, notice evil men and their movements, the word advance, to devour my flesh. Picture David writing and reflecting as he sees animal life over the Israelite terrain and the nature of the animal world attacking one another. When my enemies and my foes attack me, notice the words enemy and foe. Notice then what he says, they will stumble and fall. And though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. And though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. He has moved from God's nature in verse 1 to his confidence in verses 2 and 3. And notice the statements of confidence, certainty, faith that are found in verse 2 and then in verse 3. After using phrases such as evil men, enemies, foes in verse 2, he makes a faith-based certainty statement they will stumble and fall. Not might, not possibly, they will. Then in verse 3, where he notes again, because he's very realistic, as you and I need to be about life, when he adds, though an army besiege me, perhaps thinking of Saul's forces, and my heart will not fear, though war break out against me, even then, he adds, will I be confident? Now in verse 2, you will notice the phrase, they will. In verse 3, he in essence is saying, I will. Now he has the confidence of both the externals and the internals coming under God's sovereign way, God's sovereign plan. God is in control. His faith is being tested. The question is the fear factor. Will fear overwhelm his faith or will his faith check his fear and I'm interested by that question because the very first example of fear in the Bible is found in the Genesis account in verse chapter 3 verse 8 where we're told that the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. Do you notice how many times the word I was used there? I, I, I. Not God, God, God. What happens is that when we are estranged from God, when we are separated from God, when we lose the presence, the sense of the presence of God, we become I-conscious rather than God-conscious. And when we become I-conscious, we become fear-conscious. I became afraid, which is the very first record of fear found in history. 
The antidote to this is a good starting point. The Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Then you can deal with all the various challenges, opponents, threats to your life. And notice the they-will-I-will combination at the end of verse 2, connected to the end of verse 3. When you do that, you are slowly but surely infusing greater and greater degrees of biblical truth into your soul. From the diary of David Brainerd, Tomahawks in hand, the Indians crept toward the strange tent. And as they cautiously peered under the flap, their intention to kill was forgotten. Because there in the center of the tent was a man on his knees. And as he prayed, a rattlesnake crossed his feet, paused in position to strike. But the snake did not strike. It lowered its head again and glided out the tent. A biographer writes, It was a long time later when David Brainerd, the man in the tent, found out why the Indians in the village received him with such honor as they did and were so ready to hear the gospel presented. He had expected that they wanted to kill him, but the reason for their change of heart was the report their comrades had brought of the incredible thing that they had seen in that tent. From that day onward, the Indians looked upon David Brainerd as a messenger from the Great Spirit, whom you and I know as the Sovereign God. And they accepted the truth about his Savior into their hearts. It could very well be that you right now are being positioned because of your physical condition, your job situation, your family context, that somebody, so to speak, if I can use this metaphor, is peering into your tent. And they really want to know, do you keep first things first, as you've claimed? And they're not so much interested in your words, they're watching your emotions. And they're, they're, they're watching the fright-flight syndrome, whether it's there or not, or whether you remain true to what you believe. Are you a, truly a first-things person? As they peer into your tent. So, verses 1 through 3 teach you, and teach me, regarding God's nature, that God's protection is available to us. But second of all, a second availability, in verses 4 through 6, you and I are taught that God's presence is available to us. What I want you to do with me is to look very carefully at the rich imagery that's found here regarding the presence of God. In verse 4, one thing I ask of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to seek Him in His temple, 
For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Pause right there. Let's start looking carefully at verse 4, where it says, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. Now in your moment of crisis, in your moment of challenge, no matter what that is, what I want to pose question-wise now is this. If you were given the opportunity to do what verse 4 offers, uh, one thing I ask of the Lord, what would be that one thing that you ask of the Lord? Now, as we begin to work through the presence of God, which is available to us, what David is saying here is, you better get your priorities right. You will not gain a sense of security for your life if you have not already established your number one priority for your life. What, then, is the one thing I should ask of the Lord? This is what I seek, he said. He is seeking a profound connection with God's presence. All the various metaphors that are being used in verses 4 through 6, and can you see them? House, verse 4. Temple, last word in verse 4. Dwelling, the heart of verse 5. Shelter, this tabernacle. The end of verse 5. Rock. The end of verse 5. All of these words were various words describing places where the Israelite would be prone to meet with God. His house. His tent. His tabernacle. In other words. What David now is prescribing for you and for me to consider is a first things approach with God that we have got to pursue God. We've got to seek God out in the midst of the challenges of life. Go back now to what we had talked about with Adam in the garden. Adam ran from God's presence and became a psychological wreck as he again and again used the phrase I, the word I, over and over again, and admits before the sovereign God, I'm afraid. I realized I was naked, which is the very first example of self-awareness in the Bible, and it's in negative terms. In other words, where there's a breakdown in your theology, there will be a breakdown in your psychology. You get it wrong with God, you're going to get it wrong with yourself. And so back to first things. He needs a great sense of the presence of God. And so he's pursuing God. And he longs for God. It's a one thing I ask, and he understands then, I get my priority right in verse 4. I'll get security matters right in verses 5 and 6 because it says in verse 5, in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe. How do you come to that conclusion? 
He's got his priorities right in verse 4. Therefore he will keep me safe, he says, in this day of trouble. Where? In his dwelling. Which astounds me because so many times people run from the very places where God's word is most likely to be revealed when life begins to break down, such as worship services, small groups, various settings where truth is related to life. Because they want to shelter themselves instead of allowing God to shelter them. I've jotted down some of the various fears that typically people grapple with, wrestle with. The fear of loss. Losing a loved one. Losing a job. Losing a friendship. The fear of relationship. Some people are afraid of entering into relationships. Keep people at arm's length because they've gotten burned in the journey of life. Fear of change. They like tradition. And one of the main reasons why they love tradition is because they are fearful. They are fearful of change. So they confuse truth, which is changeless, with tradition, which is changeable. Fear of the unfamiliar. Fear of the unexplained. Fear of heights. I've got a friend who's deeply afraid of heights. He's a pilot for US Air. The fear of dying and the pain associated with the fear of the afterlife. Now we can either flee from using the motto of Adam or we can flee to using the motto of David. And David is pursuing God because he has started with first things. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Therefore, in verse 4, he says one thing. My priority, I ask of the Lord. This is what I seek. He gets his priority right in verse 4. Therefore, he gets his security issues right in verse 5. He will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle. And you notice it's a he will, he will, not I will approach. It does not mean we're passive. It does mean we are patient. We are proactive, aggressive Christians if we know God through Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. But there is a patient aggressiveness about people of faith as they know how to wait upon their Lord in a proactive way. And so now you are dealing with God's presence which is available to us as you set out to do His will. Another clip from a life. David Livingston. We have his biography at home as well. We have a couple of bookshelves, bookcases filled with nothing but biographies fill our living room. Livingston in Africa came to the river, the Zambezi. He wanted to cross it. And uh, the chief of particular tribe had been taken advantage of by Westerners and so he had vowed to kill the next Westerner that came across his path. 
In the biography, we're told Livingston, by his fluttering candle that night, turned to the Bible and read as he always did his evening passage, and he came across this promise. Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the ages. Matthew 28, 20. Closing the book, he wrote down these words. It is the word of a gentleman of the strictest and most sacred honor. He will not leave me. Therefore, I will not flee. And the result was that God used him mightily in Central Africa. I am with you always. This is the idea behind the imagery in verses 4 through 6. If you've circled the word house, temple, dwelling, shelter, rock, these are points of contact. These are settings of God's presence that the Israelite recognized. Now, when we've got our statement of faith right, we will get our strategy for fear right. But we Americans are so practical and so pragmatic, we want to just immediately develop our strategies for how to overcome A, B, C, D, and E. But we make it then an I-based approach rather than a God-based approach. David will have none of that. He knows that what you believe will shape what you do. But in America, we simply start with what we do regardless of what we believe. But David, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to have none of that because he knows we are not to be disconnected internally. What we believe should shape what we do. He believes in the presence of God. He believes, furthermore, in the protection of God. He begins with God. Therefore, now, he develops a strategy for you and me to work from. And there's the second part of this psalm in verse 7 through 14, as he now cries out to God. Notice this. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says, if you seek his face, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. And though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, he goes on to say, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. Now, there is a twofold strategy that he offers us to work with. You get your statement of faith right, then you'll get your strategy for fear right. Then, number one, by faith we should express our needs to God. Do you see that there? In verse 7 through 12? Now, look with me very carefully and ask this simple question What are the needs that David himself? is expressing to his God. First, the need of mercy. Verse 7. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. What we have to understand is that so often what we want God to do is simply answer us. What he does, and he in essence is saying, I realize I am a sinful man. You have no responsibility 
to answer me, and I have no right to demand an answer from you. What I am crying out for is for you to be merciful to me. And if you are merciful to me, you'll provide an answer to me. I deserve justice, but I long for mercy. Likewise, what you and I have to do is to realize our sinful condition when we are seeking answers from God and not start with the sense of God, give me an answer, but rather, God, in your grace, would you provide me mercy? And all that mercy clarify my questions with answers? You have to acknowledge your sinful state as I have to acknowledge mine. There's, there's the need for mercy in verse 7 that has to be expressed. There's the need for relationship in verses 8 through 10 that has to be expressed. My heart says, if you seek his face, your face, Lord, I'll seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. And for all those who felt rejection in life somewhere along the way, these words resonate. And yet you look at this and you say, I remember last week we covered number six where Gary referenced Sir Briscoe and praying with arms lifted up offering the benediction that Aaron had given to the Israelites, that God's face would shine upon them. What is David doing now? He is drawing upon the promise offered previous and relating it to the present crisis he's in. And so should you and I when we are facing the challenges of life. So now he expresses his need for mercy, verse 7. He expresses his need for relationship based upon God's promise, verse 8 through 10. Thirdly, he expresses his need for guidance, verse 11. Teach me. Teach me your way. I don't, I'm not interested in my way anymore, Lord. I, I, I'm, I'm bad when it comes to engineering roads. I, I need your way. Teach me your way, O oh Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. I'm teachable, God. And fourthly, there's the need for security of God, the mercy of God, the relationship with God, guidance from God, security from God. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. So, in strategy for fear number one, by faith, we should, we should express our needs, you see. Express our needs to God. Hudson Taylor, from another biography, heading to China, sailing vessel. The winds calm down, the ship begins moving towards a shoreline where um, there, are, there are tribes of Indians awaiting them to kill them. The captain comes to Taylor and says to him, Pray to your God. I will, said Taylor, provided you set your sails to catch the breeze. The captain begins to chuckle and he tells the sailors cynically he wants us to set our sails. There's laughing in the distance. Taylor says, I will not begin to pray until you begin to prepare the sails. They did so. While he was praying, there was a knock on his door. Yes, said Taylor. Captain's voice responded, Are you praying for wind, Taylor? Yes. Stop, said the captain. We've got more wind than we can handle. 
God will allow his people to be placed in crisis situations so that there are captains looking into our prayer rooms. Or in the case of David Brainerd, the Indians peering into his tent, and they want to know whether what you believe works out practically in the way you live. When you work that through, only then are you ready for verse 14. And I'm sure glad he, be- he ended with verse 14, didn't begin. In verse 13 he says, I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And notice he begins verse 14 with the phrase, wait for the Lord. And he ends with the phrase in verse 14, wait for the Lord. This is the bookend approach. And second of all, you and I need to learn under this strategy for fear, that number two, by faith we should commit to waiting upon God. And how do you go about doing that? Be strong. Take heart, he says in the heart of verse 14, and wait for the Lord. And now you're better able to do that. Robert Cyril and his partner, remember them? What is it that you are most afraid of in life, Lou? As Lou puts down his fork and is about to address the issue, there's this tremendous crash. Hold that thought. They went running outside and there was a car that had collided with a with a telephone pole and there was a woman trapped inside with her small child and the car was just beginning to ignite. Window was smashed and one officer leaned in and began to pull the woman out as the other officer leaned in and pulled the child out. More flames engulfed them and as soon as they pulled away the entire car was torched. They lay on the ground looking at one another cradling the ones they'd rescued in their arms. Later in the day, they were exhausted looking at one another. Robert turned to Lou and said, you know, we didn't finish that conversation. What is it that you're most afraid of in life? Lou said, every night I wake up from a nightmare that I'm engulfed in flames and God's not there. Robert, he said. He was there. No matter what you're facing, he's there. Wait on the Lord. First things first. Let's stand together. So, uh, Father, we're praying now that uh, your word has spoke practically, that we have handled your word faithfully, and now we're asking that we're going to take your truth and relate it, maybe some of it to our lives and others' past verses to be shared with other people going through rough times. This is meant to minister because it's from your word. Help us to understand when we get our statement of faith right, then we'll get our strategy for fear right. 
So, Father, may we leave now with the sense of what your word teaches us about this important subject. We thank you now for the privilege we have to worship you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.